turn to Mark chapter number 8, if you will. Mark chapter number 8. And uh, while you're turning there, let me ask you just a couple of questions. How many of you already have your Christmas decorations up at your house? God bless you. All right. How many of you, it is not Christmas time yet because it's not December. Anybody? All right. Several of you. Good. All right. How many of you have already been listening to Christmas music at your house? All right. You notice our, our slight nudge to it's almost Christmas this morning with one song, uh, but not quite, okay? It's still Thanksgiving weekend, and I uh, hope you had a great, great Thanksgiving, family and friends. And uh, how many of you are turkey, turkey, pro-turkey, and uh, pro-turkey at Thanksgiving? All right, how many of you have pro-ham at Thanksgiving? All right, there you go, all right, pro-ham, all right. Uh, how many of you, neither turkey nor ham, anybody? Turkey, oh, brisket. Now, nah, come on now. Uh, that's my love language right there. Uh, but uh, praise the Lord. Well, hey, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And uh, I hope that, you, men, I hope that you have survived not having to turn on Hallmark Christmas movies yet. And so if you were here, now, listen, no, no commentary, uh, none needed. Uh, but uh, we talked about a couple weeks ago that all the Hallmark movies have the exact same plot. And uh, I saw a picture this past week, which I thought was wonderful, wonderful. It said, what has 15 actors, six different locations, two writers, and one plot? And that would be 634 Hallmark Christmas movies. (laughs) They're all the same. They're all the same. And uh, so we still love you. And uh, even if you love me a little less, you know, I'm thankful Jesus loves me. Uh, so Mark chapter number 8 this morning, and uh, appreciate you being here. And guys, if you have those ladders, if you can go ahead and set them up uh, for me, that way it'll make it a e- little bit easier when we get there in just a few minutes. Mark chapter 8, have you ever thought about your influence and who influences your decision-making process? Uh, who influences you to make decisions? Maybe that's someone that you know. Maybe it's someone that you don't know. Maybe it's someone on the inside of your sphere, your circle of friends. Maybe it's someone on the outside. But the question this morning that I want us to get to at the end of our passage in Mark chapter number 8 is does Jesus influence you enough to affect your decision making? Does Jesus influence you enough for you to be captivated by him, for you to make decisions based on what is best for him instead of what is best for you. Jesus in Mark chapter 8 is trying to teach the disciples a valuable lesson on influence, on this same topic, and the comparison of influence specifically. So I want us to ask ourselves this morning in the message what is my process for making decisions? What process do I take my mind? As I'm making choices, what is the process thereby that I have to go through in my mind to make those decisions? Mark chapter number 8, let's read a couple verses here. And the verses will be on the screen if you don't have your Bible handy this morning. Mark chapter 8 and verse number 1. The Bible says, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way for divers of them came from afar. Verse 4, and his disciples answered him, from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? Jesus said, they've been here three days. I have compassion, concern for their well-being. And if I send them away now, they'll faint before they get home. They don't have the strength and their energy. How are we going to feed all of these people while they're here? And the disciples said, hey, there's not a McDonald's close by, Jesus. We don't have the means necessary to feed all of these people in the wilderness. And I want us to look this morning on what guides our decisions and how influence 
plays a major part in that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the day. and Thank you for the worship this morning in music. music. And uh, Lord, I thank you so much for the worship that we have now in the Word of God. And Lord, how we come with uh, needy hearts. We're thankful for what you have done. But Lord, help us not to live on the past. But Lord, help us to focus now on the present and what you desire to show us today. Lord, I ask that you please speak to my heart. Cleanse me of any sin unconfessed in my heart. Purify me and help me to be clean as I preach your word this morning to your people. Lord, please speak to us and show us how we can draw close to you and make decisions that will honor you. And Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as their Savior, please allow today to be their day of salvation. We love you. Thank you so much for loving us. Please speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down number one, the familiar feeding. The familiar feeding. We see two stories here in Mark chapter 8 from verse 1 to uh, verse 21. While we saw the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter number 6, this is not the same feeding of thousands of people. Now, all of the gospel writers talk about the first, in all four gospels, we see the feeding of the 5,000, but only Matthew and Mark show the feeding of the 4,000. This is a separate event that likely takes place near Decapolis. We see see a map on the screen this morning. Uh, Jesus is ministering to the crowds, and we saw last week how he went all the way up to Tyre and Sidon to minister to that one, that one person, that woman, the Gentile, and then he comes back down bottom right-hand corner of your screen to a place called Decapolis. And Jesus is ministering here in the last few months of his ministry. And what we see is, number one, the multitude the multitude a great crowd of people it says in verse 1 in those days the multitude being very great think about this fact that the crowd added to the problem the crowd did not make this easier to deal with it made it harder to deal with if it would have been a few people they may have been able to take what little provisions that they had brought themselves and share them among the other people. But the fact that there were multiple people there, there were thousands of people, the issue is magnified. You think about uh, if you've ever heard the statement, you know, if we had more people, we wouldn't have problems. But you don't see that here in Mark chapter 8, do you? You see the fact that there were more people meant that there was a bigger problem. It wasn't just a, hey, let's just take a bite and kind of get, get something to get us, hold us over until we eat. Maybe like you did if you ate uh, on Thursday late in the afternoon and somebody walks through the kitchen and says, you got any snacks? You got anything to hold me over until we eat? This is kind of what they could have done if there would have been less people. But they don't have less people. They have a lot of people. And the fact that there were more people increased the problems. And it's no different in church today. The more people you have, the more problems you have. Uh, Carrie Newhoff said, your struggles don't go away when your church grows. They simply change. Your problems, your struggles don't go away. It's been said that a growing church is always in a state of transition. Think about the, thing that, the, the things that you do and you get to a certain point. You have to adapt along the way to meet new challenges. And maybe you have a, a favorite restaurant. Uh, somewhere where you like to get it, uh, like to eat lunch or uh, like to eat dinner with your family. Can you imagine if a restaurant only had four or five tables and every single day they're having to turn people away, turn people away because of the crowd? I'm I'm sorry. At some point, that restaurant owner is going to have to make a decision. We're going to stay the way that we are and we're going to continue to turn people away every single day and lose out on business Or we're going to change the way that we feed all these people. We're either going to knock out a wall. We're going to increase some of our capacity. Whatever it is, you have to make a decision or else the alternative is something you have to be willing to live with. You know, I think about our church and that's one of the reasons why we're going to two services the end of January. Because we are out of space in our current space. You say, well, pastor, that's a good problem. Yes, but it is still a problem. It's something that has to be addressed. And if we built a new building, guess what? That takes two years. We can't turn people away from hearing the gospel for two years. That's not acceptable. We all agree on that. But the fact that we have a space problem is a good problem, but it's still a problem. 
And when we do that, we will need more workers. We'll need more nursery workers. We'll need more kids workers. We'll need more people for music. All for the purpose of reaching more people with the gospel of Christ. Because it's always about people hearing the gospel. But with the schedule change, I know in my heart, and you do as well, that other things will change or will have to change along the way. Uh, Some of our schedule as far as during the week will have to change. Some of our groups will have to change. All of that for the purpose of reaching more people. And the best thing that you and I can do, you know what the best thing you and I can do? Is have a good attitude. Is have a good attitude. Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm, somebody else is going to sit in my seat, Pastor. Well, maybe so, but it's not your seat to begin with. <laughs> somebody else is going to hear the music before I do. Well, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's always been and must be about him. Amen. Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 9. Joshua said, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage, be not afraid, neither thou, be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee wherever thou goest. You think about in Joshua chapter 1, it was a new place with new people, with a new leader, but they had the same God. This is our God, King Jesus. The kids sang it this morning. And because of that, they could accept change. But here's the big question. Can you accept change? Can you accept it? Can you accept the fact that things may look different, be different, yet you still have the same God? Is he enough? The disciples didn't know how to process this. They didn't know how to deal with the result, this crowd, but they knew where to bring their problem to. You see in verse number 1, it says, Jesus called his disciples unto unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude. Hey, I, I care. And this is the only time in Scripture where we see Jesus say, I have compassion. We know that he looked on the fields and he had compassion. But this is the only time in scripture that we look at and know that he says it. Say, Pastor, what's the significance about the fact that he says it? You know, sometimes we need to hear it. You know, it's good to know that Jesus loves us. But to hear him say, I have compassion, means a lot too. But it's not just doing, it's hearing. And the people who live next door to you. They need to hear that Jesus loves them. The people who work with you, they need to hear that Jesus loves them. Oh, pastor, they'll see it in my life. They'll see it on my, what would Jesus do bracelet. They'll see it on my t-shirt that I wear to work. But they need to hear it out of your mouth. They need to hear it. They need to see it in your life. They need to know that Jesus loves them. And that needs to come from you. That may be as simple as handing somebody a a track or Christmas invite that will be here next week. Whatever that looks like, you need to be sharing the greatest message that's ever been shared. Mark chapter 6, remember verse 37. He answered and said unto them, give ye them to eat. He said, the feeding of the 5,000, hey guys, just feed them. Just feed all these people. And the disciples failed the test. Here again, they failed the test again. In verse number 4. Where are we going to feed all these people? From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? How are we going to feed all these people, Jesus? Robert Murray McShane said, When God gives a promise, he always tries our faith. Just as the roots of trees take firmer hold when they are contending with the wind, so faith takes a firmer hold when it struggles with adverse appearances. These people were causing a great trial of faith and Jesus is right there with them. Isn't it ironic that Jesus is with them in the middle of a test? Jesus is right there with them in a test and he's right there with you in your test. He's right there with you and he knows that it's coming but he promised that he would never leave us in those times of testing. I wonder if that's what our hearts go through when we're tested. Do we have that struggle of faith? Do we see that, man, uh, if I cling on to Jesus, I have no limit. But if I still do what I want to do, I'm going to struggle. You think about ladders today. And here's a couple of them here on stage, conveniently located. You know, you think about, let's, let's make this analogy and talk about, you know, this ladder is what I can do, and this ladder is what Jesus can do. 
Okay, One of them is bigger than the other, and one of them is smaller than the other. You know, when we come to Christ for ourselves, there is a feeling that I am doing this. You know, I am doing what I can do, and I'm also relying on Jesus. Yes? You know, I, I'm, I'm figuring this thing out. I'm, I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to pray, but at the same time, I'm going to depend on Him. But the higher up you go and the more you grow in your Christian faith, you will get to a place where you have to make a choice. You will get to a place where you have to decide, is my life going to be about what I can achieve and what I can do and uh, how, I, uh, how I function and uh, the things that he has commanded me to do? Because I will get to the point where I can no longer lean on Jesus because I'm depending on me. I'll get to the place where it's not about Jesus anymore. It's all about me. It's all about me letting people see what I'm doing. It's all about me satisfying my flesh, and so I hear the accolades. It's no longer about Jesus and exalting Him. Now it's just about exalting me. But the thing is, I can't do this for the rest of my life either. At some point, I'm going to have to choose. It's all going to be about me, or it's all going to be about Jesus. And in our life, you think about my limitation, my abilities have a limit. My abilities, I can only go so far up the ladder and I'm going to hit my ceiling. I'm going to only be able to do so much and I can't go any further. But think about with Jesus, there are no limitations. He can take me places where I can't go just by myself. But I have to get to the place where I'm no longer trusting in me. I'm no longer trying to reach and do both things. Now I'm solely focused on doing what he allows me to do, what He empowers me to do, how He fills me and gives me that opportunity to serve Him. I'm not depending on Him on me anymore. I'm depending solely on Him. And when He works through me and He uses me in a special way, I'm not the one who gets the glory. It's all about Him. It's all what He does. It's not what I can do. Yet not I, but Christ through me. But this is one of the hardest struggles you ever have in your life. It's trying to determine at what point do I let go of my ladder? And what point do I lean solely on him? At what point do I let go of what I'm able to do? The better thing is to find out very early on in your Christian life that he is all that matters. I wonder how many times we get sidetracked by wondering what people will think. You know, as I, as I try to serve Jesus and I, hey, I, I want to I follow him and I, I want to be faithful. But when somebody criticizes my walk, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, when somebody criticizes my zeal for Christ, well, I don't want people making fun of me. I don't want somebody talking bad about I want to please everybody. Here's your side note. You can't please everybody and Jesus at the same time. It's not possible. At some point, you have to make that determination of who is your life being lived for? Is your life being lived for you and what people say about you? Or is your life being lived for, hey, one day I'm going to stand before the Lord and His is the only opinion that matters. And at the end of my life, if I hear, well done, now good and faithful servant, yeah, I might not get the accolades from my friends and my family, but as long as I hear Jesus say, well done, that's all that matters. And as long as he is pleased, as long as he gets the glory, as long as he's satisfied, then nothing else, everything else is insignificant. Everything else pales in comparison to the fact that Jesus could use my life with me knowing who I am and him knowing who I am. And yet he would still say, if you'll trust me, I'll use you. If you'll follow me, if you'll serve me, I can't go any higher than this. My wife will get mad. But if, but if, if I make Jesus the focus of my life and I'm willing to say, you know what? I, I don't even know why I trusted in me. All that time when Jesus was the one who was providing all along. 
When Jesus was the one who gave me the ability all along. When Jesus was the one who deserves the glory all along. Why am I focused on me and what other people think about me? When I should be fully, solely focused on what Jesus says about me. Hey, I promise you, you will not regret standing before the Lord and saying, Man, I wish I would have focused on me more. No. You get to him, stand before Him and say, Man, I wish I would have focused on Him more. I wish I would have made, a whole lot earlier, I wish I would have made my life about Him more often than I did. Because it's, at the end of our day, it's not about what people think about me. Can people see Jesus in your life? Can people see Him in you? Because that won't happen as we straddle the two ladders. That won't happen. As I focus on my life, that won't happen. People only see Him when I'm resting solely on Him, not on myself. And now I'm going to try and come down the ladder without falling. All right? Think about the disciples. Jesus asked them a very simple question. Hey, how are we going to feed all these people? What's ironic about this is this just two chapters before, whoo, lightheaded, uh, just two chapters before, it's the change in altitude. Uh, two chapters before, it's the change in the heat. Oh, my goodness. Uh, two chapters before, the disciples had watched Jesus feed thousands of people. Here we are again, thousands of people. So we see, number two, not just this uh, first point, this multitude of people. Number two, we see the miracle. In verse 5 through 9, we see he asked them. He gives them an opportunity to say, hey, Jesus, why don't you do what we saw you do before? That would be awesome. You know, you did that before. You healed that guy a few days ago. But why don't you do what you did back then? Fail. Verse 5, he asked them, how many loaves of you? And they said, seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground. Now, the thing that I like about this, in Mark chapter number 6, remember, Jesus got them involved. He said, hey guys, go around and have the people sit down. Remember that? They went around and commanded the people sit down in groups of 50 and hundreds and that kind of thing. Here, he uses them less. You notice this? Look back at verse number 5. And he commanded the people to sit down. He doesn't involve them. Could it be that their faith is lacking? Could it be that because of their lack of faith, Jesus uses them less? Could it be our lack of faith that Jesus uses us less than he could have? He commands them to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, gave thanks and break, and gave the disciples to set before them. And they did set them before the people. Finally, they get involved. Finally, they're able to be used. But how often does God work in our lives? And the very next obstacle we face, we struggle because we forget what Jesus just did. Are we short-term memory Christians? Yeah, God's been good, but pastor, what has he done for me lately? Or are we long-term? We have short-term memory loss when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. Where we forget the things that he did yesterday and we expect and demand him to do something today. There was a group that's here in the story, by the way. We'll get to them in just a minute, but... See, Jesus asked them. He doesn't ask them to feed out of what they have. He doesn't ask them to feed all these people. He just says, hey, what do you have that you can give to me? What do you have that you can submit? And the thing that I love about this is Jesus will never require you to give out of what you don't already have. Jesus will never require you to give out of what you don't already have. Say, Pastor, how do you know that? Because we see it over and over in Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 11. Now therefore perform the doing of it. Talking about giving. That is, there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. There it is. Luke chapter, eight, uh, Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. You know this verse very well. Give and it shall be given unto you. Does it say give what you don't have, and then God will give you more? No, no, no. 
Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give unto your bosom. What we have, we give. What we have to give, we're giving that to him. And people think that when I come to Jesus, I'm going to have to give up something massive just to be able to get involved in what he's doing. I won't be able to partake. I won't be able to compete. And I won't be able to complete this task that the Lord has for me. But here's the problem. That makes life about us and what I can do, and not what he's doing. How much can I give? What can I perform when this is not how Jesus designed us to live? This is not biblical living. This is me living. This is living that focuses on me, not on Jesus. And Jesus is simply saying, if you'll just give the small little bit that you have, I'll use it in a great way. But if they are tight-fisted here, hey, how much do you have, guys? Well, we have seven loaves, Jesus, but, you know, that's our lunch. That's what we have. That's how we were going to feed ourselves. And Jesus just simply asked them to trust him. Hey, this morning, can you trust Jesus with what you have? Can you trust him with what he's given you? Or are you walking around like this when it comes to Jesus? We should walk around with him like this. Lord, if, if I've got just a little bit, and you can use my little bit, you can have it. Every single time, Lord, you just ask, you can have it. It's always available for you to ask. All you have to do is ask. He continues to break. As they're giving it to him, he gave them what they needed. Now, here's the thing. He didn't multiply it, say, take it out, multiply. He, he literally just continues. He multiplies according to his ability, not their ability. They had a limit. Remember, they had a ceiling. They could only go so far. He doesn't have limits. He's limitless. We see the miracle that he does. But then, number three, we see the misery that's involved. Look at verse number 10. And straightway, after the miracles performed, he enters into a ship with the disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. Now, looking back on the map, if you see this part, this Dalmanutha region that's mentioned here, we'll show you the map in just a second. But when we get to the map, Dalmanutha is over on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's gone from Decapolis, now he's here at Dalmanutha. Gets back on a boat, goes across the Sea of Galilee to Dalmanutha. He's here, and as soon as he steps off the boat, verse number 11, and the Pharisees come forth and begin to question with him. All of a sudden, he's met with opposition. Imagine that. They just saw Jesus do something amazing, and now there's opposition. Does that sound familiar? God does something awesome in our life, and boom, we're faced with opposition. Woo-hoo-hoo! Oh, man, Pastor, what's God doing? Well, yesterday we were excited about what God did, and now we're complaining about what God did. God, why, why are you doing this to me? And the Pharisees have been watching him from a distance, and all of a sudden they ask him, it says, they tempt him, seeking of him a sign from heaven. Now, time out. What had Jesus just done? Performed the miracle. He had just done the miracle, but remember, that was Decapolis. That wasn't in Dalmanutha. That was in Decapolis. They weren't there. They didn't see it. Maybe they'd heard about it, but they didn't see it for themselves. You know anybody that says, well, I'm not going to believe unless I see it. I'm not going to believe that there's a God. I'm not going to believe that He's real unless I see Him do something flashbang in the sky. If I see Him right in the sky, then I'll believe it. That's not faith. That's not faith. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. We have to trust. We have to believe. They knew what he claimed to be, but he knew what they were trying to do. They sought after a sign, tempted him. Verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. <sighs> Maybe you did that this past week with family or with friends or that crazy uncle that you have. <sighs> okay, here we go again. And that's where Jesus is. Sighs deeply in his spirit and says, why doth this generation seek after a sign? I, let me just time out right here. <laughs> they were looking for a sign and he was standing right in front of them. 
Think about that one. They were looking for a sign, and he was right there. Hey, how, how do I need to know? How, Pastor, how do I know that God loves me? Because he came and died for you. That's how you know that God loves you. He already came. Well, Pastor, that was 2,000 years ago, and yet he doesn't love you any less today than he did then. He loves you. He's already given you a sign to prove that. He's already given all of us multiple miracles in our lives to show that he loves us and he is present. This was a setup and Jesus knew it. He even said, Matthew chapter 6 verse 8 in the Sermon on the Mount, Be not ye, talking to the people, hey, don't be like unto them. Who's he talking about? Them. He's talking about the religious. A lot of religiosity in our world today. Oh, yeah, I love Jesus. But, yeah, that God of the Old Testament, yeah, I don't don't really like him. Uh, That God that called down fire from heaven, I'm not sure about that. Hey, I love Jesus. and Yeah, God is love. Love is love. But when we think about our life today, Jesus said, hey, don't be like them. Focus on me. Don't be like them. Why? Because Jesus knew who they were. Jesus knew what they wanted. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Hey, those people who are consumed with the flashbang, that's the wicked and adulterous generation. They're looking for a show. And what does Jesus say in verse number 12? There shall no sign be given unto this generation. Hey, I'm not coming to give you what you're asking for. I'm already here. I don't need to give you a sign because I am the sign. And if you and I have to see it to believe it, where's our faith? Where is our faith if we have to be convinced on a regular basis of his existence? Then where is our faith? From time to time, you look at your checking account balance. You say, okay, I know on Tuesday, whew, God, you got to come through before Tuesday. God, I know that there's a bill coming, and I know that there's a doctor's appointment coming, and I know that all this stuff, and I know we got to feed all these kids that you just keep giving us at our house. Uh, you gotta, i got to feed all these people. If we have to see it to believe it, where's our faith? Faith requires exercising that faith. See, we can say that we have faith, but until we exercise that faith, that faith's mighty weak. So your faith is only as strong as the object of your faith. That's why if you have faith in your job and you lose your job, your world comes crumbling down. That's why if you have faith in your spouse and your spouse walks out the door and you crash and burn, your faith is in the wrong place. But listen, church, when our faith is placed in Jesus, He never fails. He never fails. When our faith, the object of our faith, is something that can always be trusted, we don't have to worry about anything. That's why Paul said in the book of Philippians, don't be anxious about anything. Place your faith in Him and you don't have to worry about those things. Why aren't we convinced with all the things he's already done? The familiar feeding here. But then lastly this morning we see the forgetful followers. The forgetful followers. Jesus literally walks away. We're we're talking about toxic people in our Sunday school class, small group on Sunday mornings. When to walk away from toxic people. When to walk away. Jesus turns and walks away in verse number 13. He leaves them. Goes into a ship again. And goes back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Where he just came from. Back over to Decapolis. In verse number 14, these disciples are struggling. Jesus makes a statement and they are struggling. We see the warning that's mentioned in verse 14 and 15. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. You remember that miracle that they just saw? They forgot to get the leftovers. They forgot to take bread. They forgot after what they had just seen, what they just witnessed. They forgot to take bread. 
And Jesus, verse 15, he charged them saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now we know what leaven is. Today we, it's called yeast. You have to have yeast to make bread rise. You understand that. You walk in the house and you just, ah, oh, somebody's making bread. You know, you feel spiritual all of a sudden, you know. But that yeast, you have to have that leaven. And Jesus says, beware of the leaven, the yeast, that rising agent of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The, the Pharisees were focused on religious hypocrisy. Hey, we look good on the outside. As long as you do to make us happy and to make God happy, God will be Okay, God will be pleased. We know that that's false. Galatians tells us about that. Herod wanted the people to conform. He was talking about the philosophy of compromise. Hey, you don't always have to love Jesus. You can love the world sometimes too. And you can straddle the fence. And as long as you go to church, but you're not really involved. Uh, you know, you can uh, serve, just don't, just attend. You don't have to serve. Or if you do serve, just kind of do it half-hearted. You don't have to be so faithful about it. And, uh, as long as you're just not all the way in, you'll be fine. That was Herod's philosophy. Compromise. It was Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 8. Remember when Pharaoh told Moses, hey, you can go and you can worship, just don't go very far. Hey, you can go, but don't take your kids. You can go, but don't take the animals. It was serve with compromise. I wonder how many times that's our life. We serve, but we compromise. We come in on Sunday morning and we act like everything's fine, but we just screamed at our wife and kids in the car on the way to church. Or we just cussed out Uncle Joe who was with us this past Thursday and we got right with the Lord and so we came to church on Sunday morning. Or we kind of serve, but man, I'd rather be at home in bed. You know, I, I'm, I'm here, yeah, I'm going to sing. You're worthy of it all sometimes. We half-hearted. Remember Jesus said to the churches, that's what makes me sick. I wish you were cold or hot. I could accept that, but because you're lukewarm, it makes me want to vomit. From Jesus. That's him. We, he would rather us be all the way in or all the way out. Pick a side. That's where it is. You know, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through vain philosophy, vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the roots of the world, and not after Christ. Pick a side. How pure is your worship? Are you all in or are you all out? You know, if you're all out, you're probably just here because your wife or husband made you to be here. Or your mom or dad forced you to get here. But if you're all in, man, there's something special. Hey, I'm coming into the presence. We're going into the throne room. And we're going to sing, you're worthy of it all. Because he is here. We're coming into the sanctuary. We'll sing that in a few minutes. But we're coming into his presence. I'm all in. We see not only... The warning, we see the worrying, verse 16. While Jesus is trying to teach him a very important principle about the leaven. Hey, don't be sidetracked. Stay all in, guys. Verse 16, and they reason among themselves saying, it's because we have no bread. Hey, Jesus is trying to give us this, you know, kind of short and sweet message. Trying to hint, hint. Hey, you guys should have brought bread. You should have brought lunch. There's no McDonald's. Not yet. You know. Hey, there's nowhere we're stopping to buy bread. That's what they thought. They were so focused on themselves that he, they could not see what he was trying to show them. And that's us, church. We're so focused. I'm not quite done. We're so focused. So focused. Thank you. Uh, focused on the things that are going on in our lives that we can't even see what he's provided, what he's trying to teach us, what he's trying to show us. We think about that he's trying to give us this message when in reality it's something else. Hey, all of us have our own bread, don't we? When Jesus said, it's not about the bread. And they were focused on the bread. We all have our bread. Our, our focus, the thing that we hold close to us that we don't really share with anybody else. It could be a burden. It could be a blessing. And that could be our job. It could be our family. It could be our hobby, our title, our retirement, whatever it is. But we all have bread. That thing that we won't sacrifice because we feel like God's asking too much of us. Hey, that's mine. Jesus, you can have most of my life and I'll be right here in the middle. But don't ask for my bread. Don't ask for that. Hey, 
Stop thinking about the bread, church. It's not about the bread. Jesus is trying to teach us something, trying to show us something. Colossians chapter two, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth, for you're dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. What do you do with dead things? You bury them. If you've ever had a, a dead animal at your house, you wish it was buried somewhere. Hey, because it starts to stink. Sometimes we come in with stinking stuff that we're carrying around that should have died and been buried with Christ. And we're holding on to it. Woodrow Crawl said, when it comes to God's commands, the issue is not clarity, it's commitment. We don't need God to clarify what he said in his word. He already said it. We just need to do it. We just need to do it. We see, lastly, the wondering, verse 17 through 21. When Jesus knew it, remember, they're, they're so focused, they're worried about, oh man, it's about this bread, and uh, he's trying to get us, tell us, you know, subliminal messaging. When Jesus knew it, he said to them, why reason ye because you have no bread? He asked them nine questions right here, the next three verses. Why are you focused on this? Why are you looking at this? Why are you, fo- are you do you hear me? Do you see me? What, what, what's all the problem? And in verse 21, he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? Jesus asks all these questions for one simple purpose. And here it is. And this is the the crux of our message. Their wondering came from a lack of focus, not a lack of teaching. Jesus had taught them everything they needed to know up to this point. So it wasn't from a lack of teaching. The problem here is a lack of focus. Focus. Jesus had shared truth. They had heard him. They had seen it. But they were numb to it. It no longer captivated them. It no longer arrested their attention. We've been this way. Think about it this morning. Pastor Tim gets up and says, let's stand and sing joy to the world. Hey, is he still joy to your world? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. It's time to go to lunch. We're no longer captivated by it. We'll get up next week and we'll sing all Christmas music next Sunday. Just hold, hold on there. Hold your excitement. We'll be all Christmas next week. We'll have Christmas decorations, have Christmas cards. We'll have all kinds of crazy Christmas stuff going on. You come the next week, it'll be even crazier with tacky sweaters. We'll be all in. But I wonder... If we'll be all in. I wonder how many times we've lost the wonder of Christmas. We've lost that captivation. We've gotten used to it. We're not affected by it anymore. These disciples had spent three years with Jesus at this point. They were no longer captivated by him. And so when Jesus starts asking this question, he says, Hey guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. They're focused on bread, and Jesus is still trying to teach. They're focused on something else. They're not captivated. They're not all in listening. Oh, man, Jesus is trying to teach us something. What's what's he want us to learn? They're thinking about bread. They're thinking about their next meal. Have we lost our captivation with Jesus? They had allowed other people to influence them to the point where they no longer were in awe. And wonder of who he was. We see in Matthew chapter number 16. It's the parallel passage to this, to this passage. But it says in verse number 12. Then understood they how that he bade them not be aware of the leaven of the bread. They got it. They got it. This was the moment where they got it. You say how do you know that they got it? Because in Matthew chapter 16 in verse number 13. Jesus asked them a very important question. Matthew 6, yeah, there it is. Jesus comes to the coast of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, and he says, who do men say that I am? Come on now, here it is. Hey, guys, do you get this? Do you get this? Are you still focused? Are you locked in? And he asks them the question, who do people say that I am? That is a big question that every person has to answer, by the way. Who is Jesus? To some people, he's just a teacher. To some people, he's just another man. To some people, he's a good prophet. But to us, he's the Son of God. 
Who do people say that I am? Jesus asked the disciples, and in verse number 15, were you listening, guys, on the boat? Peter says, thou art the Christ. Hey, you are the one, the son of the living God. Pastor, big deal. It's a title. Oh, there's a lot in that title. There's a lot in that title. Hey, you are the one who has come to save. You are the son of the living God. Jesus, you're the only one who can take away sin. You are that one. That's who you are. It sunk in. It sunk in. That's why in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, you have to go back in the slides, guys. Sorry, I jumped over it on purpose. But that's why when the angel said to Joseph, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is interpreted God with us. See, God didn't just come to be with us. He came to be in us. And when he's in us, he made a promise and said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Is God with you today? Is God in you today? See, God can be all around you, but until you place your faith in Christ, he's not in you. And that is the difference between heaven and hell today. He's either with you or in you. Is he in you? Why is it so important that we're not swayed by outside influence? Because we need to constantly be reminded of who he is. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's why next week we'll be all about behold him. Hey, are you seeing him for who he is? Do you know him? One of my favorite Christmas movies of all time is Elf. Super spiritual. It's in the Bible, I'm sure. But remember that part of Elf in the store when the manager says, Tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming. Remember Elf's response? Santa! (laughs) Why was he so excited? What did he say? I know him. I know him. That should be our response. Emmanuel, God with us. I know him. Does he know you today? Do you know him? Hey, you can either be excited or sad. But the fact remains, he loves you and came for you, died for you, because he loves you. Hey, is he the Christ in your life? Have you seen him? Do you know him today? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Do you know Jesus is your personal Savior this morning? Whether you're in the room, watching online, makes no difference. Do you know him? Is he affecting your thought process? The decisions that you make. Because when you know who he is, it changes how you live. When you know him, it affects who you are, what you do. Do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Hey, Pastor, I I don't know Jesus is my personal Savior. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced that heaven is my home. I'm not sure. That's where I was, by the way. I was 17 years old, and I did not know that Jesus was my personal Savior, and I placed my faith and trust in Him. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you say, Pastor, I'm not sure that heaven's my home. I don't know, but, man, I'm at least concerned about it enough where I would ask you to pray for me. Hey, I don't want to embarrass you. I'm not going to send somebody to come and talk to you after the service, but I would like to pray for you. Maybe you're here this morning and say, Pastor, hey, with nobody looking around, I don't want to be embarrassed, but would you simply pray for me? Would you slip up your hand honestly and say, Pastor, that's me. Pray for me. I'm not sure, but I would at least ask you to pray for me. Is that you? I don't want to miss you. Would you simply slip up your hand and say, Pastor, I'm not sure. Pray for me. I want to be your friend this morning. Pastor, pray for me. I'm not sure that heaven's my home. Just pray for me. Is that you? I don't want to miss you. I want to pray for you. Pastor, I'm not sure. Please pray for me. Is that you? 
Is that you? Maybe you're, thank you for your honesty. You can put your hand down. Maybe you're here this morning. You say, hey, I haven't raised my hand yet, but I'll raise it right now. Hey, I'm not sure, Pastor. That's me. I just have questions. I'm not sure what following Jesus even looks like. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's your story. Can I pray for you today? I haven't raised my hand yet, but I'll raise it right now. Pastor, pray for me. I'm not sure. Pray for me. I'm not sure. If you're here this morning and you know Christ is your Savior, you should be praying for those that don't know Him this morning. But maybe you know Jesus is your personal Savior and you would say, Hey, Pastor, I'm letting other people influence my walk with Him. I'm letting other people influence my decision-making. I'm letting other people crowd in. It's not all about Jesus. It's starting to become about me. Maybe that's your testimony. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but God knows your heart. God knows who you are. Would you simply right now, before we even sing one word of the next song, would you simply talk to Him about that and acknowledge that's where you are and ask Him to help you? Ask Him to forgive you for focusing on you and not on Him. If you here this morning, you need to take a step or make a decision. There are cards right in front of you, and you can fill out one of those cards. Someone will contact you and help you in your spiritual journey, your walk with the Lord. We'd be honored to help you with that. Our personal workers are down front, behind you, up front. would love to pray with you if you have a need this morning. We would love to do that and minister to you. Whatever your spiritual need is, we want to help you. Father, please bless our time of invitation. And Lord, I ask that you please speak to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to see you at work. Help outside influences not to crowd in. This is a busy time of the year. It'll be easy, Lord, for other things, external decisions and plans and focus, Lord, to crowd in and distract us. But, Lord, help us to focus in on the Christ, the Son of the living God. Help us to see you this holiday season. Help us to peer into the manger like it's the very first time and be captivated by who you are and what you came to accomplish. Lord, for those that raise their hand and not sure where they'll spend eternity, Lord, help them this morning to talk to you, confess their need, to turn that need over to you. Lord, trust you. Salvation is simply acknowledging sin, that we're all sinners. It's acknowledging that you died on the cross for that sin and believing that what you did applies to us and then trusting that when you made that promise that you would save us when we ask. We're trusting that you're going to keep your word. Lord, maybe there's somebody here this morning that needs to take that step. Lord, help us to do what you're calling us to do. Lord, we come into this sanctuary to worship you. Please receive our worship today. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us, please. Pastor Tim's going to lead us in that song, Sanctuary. If you need to come and pray, the altar's open. I'll be right down front. If you need to talk to someone, our personal workers are around the room. We'd love to pray with you. Do whatever God wants you to do this morning as we sing.